Welcome to the Peel Podcast. Public Interest Environmental Law UK, also known as Peel, is a student-led organisation that runs a yearly conference on the topic of environmental law. Due to the current COVID-19 pandemic, we were unable to host this year's conference due to take place on the 17th of April. Instead, we were fortunate enough to run an online lecturing Q&A on the same day. It is this web event that makes our first Peel podcast. For this online lecture, we are delighted to have Professor Maria Lee with us. Maria has been a professor of law at University College London since 2007, where she is co-director of the Centre for Law and the Environment. She has recently been working intensively on the implications of Brexit for environmental law. Maria will now be discussing how the climate and other crises put pressure on our traditional assumptions about good decision-making. So thank you, Beatrice. I'm really pleased and I'm very grateful to the committee for all of their work putting the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference together this year and arranging for us to meet remotely, which is quite exciting, really, and they have been extremely patient with me. They've given me lots of practice. Um, I look forward to hearing the rest of the programme over the coming weeks. Okay, so when I came up with my title, Participation in a Time of Crisis, I think everybody already knew that I meant the climate crisis. I've had to introduce that this time. I still do mean the climate crisis. The climate crisis is really not going anywhere, but clearly we do have some more immediate concerns at the moment. Now, there's a long-standing progressive orthodoxy that, however flawed, the inclusion of, for want of a better word, ordinary people, contributes positively to good democratic environmental decision-making. Participation is central to environmental law, especially public interest environmental law. Law at its best provides guarantees of participation and attempts to mitigate the failures and the flaws of participation. Although it has to be said that sometimes law just reinforces those failures. But in any event, environmental law both shapes and is shaped by the way we understand good decision-making. The orthodox support for public participation has been under pressure in recent years. The urgency of climate change tempts some people away from democratic norms. The failure of democracies to respond adequately to the climate emergency gives fresh appeal to technocracy, by which I mean essentially a drawing of legitimacy from competence and expertise rather than from broader consent. At the heart of technocracy is the idea that all problems are technical problems and te have technical solutions that can be revealed by adequately knowledgeable individuals. And at the same time as this technocracy, we have right-wing populism, which might be giving the people a bad name. And populist manipulation of the facts may seem to have placed a very high cost on democratic scrutiny of expertise. The perhaps self-evident and certainly simple point that I want to make today is that democracy matters no less than it always has. And that what environmental lawyers call the Aarhus principles are a crucial part of democratic decision making. 
So what does the climate change emergency mean for participatory and technocratic approaches to governance? Um, this is a question that my colleague, Dr. Chiara Armani, who may or may not be out there in the ether some way, it's a question that we were kind of tormenting ourselves with before lockdown. And of course, the current pandemic really resonates. So I shall begin this lecture with a few words on that. Then I'll turn to technocracy, its appeal, its dangers, before turning to a few words on public participation and its limitations. And I'll end with some fairly brief thoughts on some issues around participation in the climate emergency. To be very clear, nothing that I say is intended to suggest or encourage doubt about the, the, the severity of our current health emergency or about the appropriateness of drastic measures. And I hope I don't need to say that the climate crisis is real and it is dire. But we have choices about how we respond. And even now, even at this time, I'm concerned with process. So let's start with the new coronavirus COVID-19. Some, not all, environmental indicators are positively affected by the abrupt ceasing of economic activity. Cleaner air, cleaner water, lower carbon emissions. This might give us a breathing space, a pause. But in the absence of structural, social, infrastructure, technological change, this will survive no longer than the virus-induced economic recession. But perhaps we're seeing how much of our travel really is necessary, how much of our consumption really is necessary. Perhaps people will even get used to breathable air. And perhaps more profound than the short-term environmental indicators is that all of the things that we'd been told were inevitable and unchangeable, it turns out aren't inevitable or unchangeable. So might this be the end of subjugating all else to market imperatives, competitiveness, to flexibility? Perhaps this really is the opportunity for structural change. I should say that we said exactly the same about the 2008 financial crisis. And Brexit certainly goes against all economic received wisdom. Those examples suggest that unless the argument plays out differently this time, the whole nothing can ever be the same rhetoric is just a step on the way to even harsher austerity, even stronger economic disciplines. The underpinning central danger of this crisis for the environment is economic recovery at any price. Or worse, the deliberate taking of this opportunity to dismantle environmental protections for ideological reasons. That physical risk relates directly to our theme for today. A better world depends on the scrutiny of those with power and on attending to diverse viewpoints and perspectives. And on that, what sort of shape will civil society, environmental civil society, emerge in? The traditional large environmental groups are facing massive economic challenges. Protests on the street just aren't possible. Maybe some politicians will start to enjoy their power, closing borders, 
postponing elections, restricting the freedom of movement of risky people, requiring reasons from citizens for day-to-day -day activities. And what's happening to our democratic processes through this? We expect Parliament to return from recess next week. What does a more or less online Parliament mean for parliamentary scrutiny of government? What about parliamentary scrutiny of legislation, including the Environment Bill, which was at committee stage before recess? What does it mean for civil society engagement with Parliament? More fundamentally even, on 13th of March, government announced that local elections scheduled for May would be postponed for a year. I'm definitely not saying that that was the wrong decision, but it was done without discussion and there was almost no media coverage and no media response. So look what else happened on the 13th of March. The 13th of March was when the elections were postponed. Also on 13th of March, the final day of the Cheltenham Festival. Last that happened the same day as the elections were postponed. And it was a whole week, a week before the Prime Minister told pubs, restaurants, etc. to close. So those who urge that we can and must do things better on the way out of this crisis are absolutely right. But there are dangers. And we'll come back to the lockdown. Returning to technocracy and the climate emergency, it's an undeniable fact that democracies have not yet adequately faced up to climate change, nor has anyone else yet, of course. But this has led to a critique of democracy from some in the environmental movement. This is nothing new. David Runciman, in his work on democratic crises, says that the successes of democracy have always been accompanied by a constant drumbeat of intellectual anxiety. And on the environment specifically, there has long been a strand of autocracy or dictatorship in ecological thought. More generally, there's a vast literature on the limitations and inadequacies of democracies. We don't need to go into detail, but some common critiques include that democracies move slowly, they find it difficult to engage with the long term, they're overly affected by special interests. At a micro level, some see objections to wind farms or protests about fuel taxes as a failure of democracy. Now, Ronsiman argues that we, democracies, have failed to address climate change, not because we're stupid or even because we're in denial, but because we know we're not stupid. We're confident that someone will do something before it's too late, because that's what's always happened before. Now, I'll leave to one side proposals for revolutionary change and some sort of autocratic ecological regime. It isn't clear to me where we find these ecological strongmen and regimes towards the autocratic end of the spectrum in the real world are far from ecologically superior. So let me stay for now in the more respectable company of those who demand that we pay heed to the scientists, whatever the politicians query the people might say. Technocracy, like democracy, like autocracy, like populism, is not on or off, but more or less. At its heart, again, 
I mean a situation in which all problems become technical problems capable of resolution and capable of resolution only by qualified technical experts. A more technocratic and less inclusive approach is seen by some as a more effective way to respond to climate change. Now, by whom? Um, Nico Stair in this book sets out some of the explicit calls for a war footing or an argument that um, exceptional circumstances justify a restriction of democratic rights. But there are other less explicit lines of thought that are also interesting, I think. So, for example, Joanne Hawkins' great article on communities affected by fracking suggests that publics also have a yearning for experts to come in and settle disagreements. Or alternatively, Pierce et al. say that efforts to prove a scientific consensus on climate change in part, and this is a complex story, but in part, they seek to drive political processes by facts. Even normative theories of expertise, which essentially attempt to draw clear lines between who is and who is not entitled to contribute to propositions of truth, even those normative theories of expertise attempt to reduce the issues that are suitable for political disagreement. And we can add to these examples every exasperated or terrified assertion that this something is simply what must be done whenever that assertion fails to include multiple paths and people. The expectations of science in these ideas are, I think, more or less unrealistic, as is recognised by most of the work on the slide. But they are interesting and important responses to the undoubted urgency of the moment and the failure of existing approaches. I think a turn to scientists is also an understandable response to right-wing populism, especially that part of populism that we call post-truth and its association with climate denialism. Moreover, technocracy and populism go hand in hand. They're in a kind dance with each other. So, for example, Chantal Mouffe and other political theorists see the populist moment as to some degree a response to the there is no alternative consensus of neoliberalism. And vice versa, vice versa, technocracy is in part a backlash against populism. More importantly, perhaps, technocratic and populist approaches share a resistance to the procedural legitimacy that is at the heart of our discussion today. Notwithstanding our multiple crises, I think technocracy is to be resisted. To be very clear again, um, I'm not resisting science or expertise or knowledge. On the contrary, they are crucial. But the argument, desire or expectation that experts or technical advisors are all we need to respond to the climate crisis is to be resisted for a number of reasons. Some uncertainty is inevitable and someone somehow chooses, consciously or not, what to do with that uncertainty, which might be to ignore it, pretend it's not there. 
Experts make choices and assumptions when they make and present knowledge. Objectivity is elusive. Whether we mean knowledge that simply exists and can be relied upon by anyone regardless of their interests, or whether we mean an utterly disinterested state of mind, objectivity is elusive. Another long-standing idea in the resistance to technocracy is that which facts matter, whether expertise is consequential or salient, is a social rather than a technical question. The populist rejection of expertise is exemplified in this country by the notorious statement of Michael Gove as one of the leading pro-Brexit politicians during the Brexit referendum campaign, that people in this country have had enough of experts. Now, Gove was ridiculed for this, and there are plenty, plenty reasons to be suspicious of the Leave campaign, but there's something in this one. Gove was discussing the economic consensus that leaving the EU would be bad for the economy and indeed that EU migration is economically beneficial. On this economic expertise specifically, two observations. First, it contradicted the lived experience of many of those voting for Brexit, because it, it, it entirely failed to account for the distribution of those benefits. Second, such advice about the economy is just unhelpful if the politically salient question is about sovereignty or identity. This is a case where the turn to expertise dramatically failed to shape the public meaning of the Brexit debate. Related to and possibly underpinning these insights is the recognition that the expertise that is used to govern, to act in the world, is partially socially constructed. It doesn't just exist out there waiting to be found so that it can be neutrally slotted into a decision-making process. What we choose to know, how we come to know it, and what that means in the world are deeply tied to the social, and indeed vice versa. The social is tied to facts, what and how we know. A number of commentators, including lawyers, explicitly accuse this strand of scholarship of enabling populism and or climate, climate denialism. And that's because climate denial uses similar terms and ideas to those I've just used, and which we had thought were about underpinning emancipatory calls for public participation. Accepting that social constructionism is used in very different ways. Saying that something is socially constructed does not mean that it is bad or should be rejected. And it does not mean that perception is the same as reality. Social construction is a way of viewing the world that gives us additional tools for analysis. It, is, it allows us to see that things could have been otherwise. The scientific and the social are irremediably intertwined and what we know is closely connected with how and why we know it. And the longest standing, most intuitive, and I think most significant reason for resisting technocracy. Can science tell us what to do? Can scientists persuade us to do it? Ceasing all emissions immediately, 
would create social and economic dislocation on an enormous scale. Lockdown shows us the difficulties of sudden drastic change. We also know that we can't just wait for the market to make us reduce our carbon emissions. But between those two extremes, which experts have the necessary knowledge to decide what we do? Ultimately, we can't sidestep the politics. David Wallace-Wells, in this um, wonderful and awful book, makes the point that politics is not a trivial ingredient in climate. You can't depoliticize by fiat. There are thousands of routes to carbon transition or carbon transformation. And this might be a good moment to go back to the virus. We've watched politicians invoke expertise for legitimacy again and again. We're following the science, we're led by the science, we're guided by the science. And yes, we want our leaders to have the best science and knowledge and advice. But three things. First of all, uncertainty. The experts know surprisingly much, but also worryingly little about this brand new virus. And the uncertainty about what happens next, politically, socially, economically, won't ever be resolved by more data. We need judgment and expertise. We need the best informed guesses, but still. And secondly, we're a very long way from really judging the UK government's response to the virus. But we are, of course, seeing criticisms of the scientific advice itself and of the government's failure to challenge that advice. We're told that assumptions were built into modelling about the implausibility of a Wuhan-style lockdown being politically acceptable in the UK. If that's true, and it's been denied, but if that's true, well, early February is a very, very long time ago. And actually, it wouldn't have been an evil or even an unreasonable assumption at that time. For our purposes, it shows the importance of a range of voices, self-conscious openness about assumptions, and wide debate about assumptions. I've argued before that scientific models, rather than just being true or false, and to be honest, if they're about anything interesting, they're always a bit false. Rather than just being about true or false, they can provide a space for us to talk about what to do and why. And third, and perhaps most obvious, this crisis shows that you don't need a degree in science and technology studies spot that these are not purely scientific or technical questions. What to do about the virus has many dimensions and includes fundamental questions about what matters. It's about the balance and the relationship between different health questions, health and other values. It's about equality, who wins, who uses, who loses. We know very well that both the disease and the lockdown will have different impacts within countries and between countries. Taking seriously this common sense recognition of the insufficiency of expertise means asking who is in the mind of decision makers? Who are they most concerned about? It means thinking about which sort of expert, which publics are involved in shaping the future, how they're involved, why they're involved, for what purposes. 
There are big questions here about the disease, about democracy and emergencies, about public science. For now, expert judgment is crucial. And I think we might be valuing expertise or just plain competence more than ever. But even now, it's not just about the experts. And indeed, it's plausible that the distributive impacts of what is ahead of us will give politics a new urgency for good, probably also for ill. Next, I want to turn explicitly to public participation, to the orthodoxy and the backlash. There are many justifications for public participation in decisions affecting the environment. Everything I've just said about the fragility of expertise points towards the need for legitimate political authority. And this we have tended to find in democratic processes, processes that generally go beyond periodic elections. More broadly, public participation is necessary in an orthodox way because we have a right to be involved in decisions about our world. Further, knowledge and information are dispersed and fragmented and public participation opens a wide space for different forms of knowledge and information to those decisions. And of course, we rely on broad consent and engagement to make change happen. My starting point is that public participation is basically a good thing. I hope it's clear that my support isn't unqualified, but it's worth saying that because Participation is vulnerable. Vulnerable because its traditional supporters are turning away. Vulnerable because populist, populist leaders already know what the real people think. Vulnerable because of the political moment. Brexit means that EU legal protections are going to disappear. And then we've got the political risks from the virus. And of course, Public participation is vulnerable because it's often deeply flawed in practice. There are well-rehearsed barriers to participation, and the fact that they are unevenly distributed means that rights to participate can, if care is not taken, actually amplify existing inequality. So there are practical problems. Taking part can be gruelling emotionally and physically, it may require skills, expertise. Related, the democratic and deliberative credentials of participation are often challenged. Who and what interests are present or missing? Is meaningful deliberation plausible when there's unequal power? And thirdly, can participation meaningfully impact decisions? And then there's the very thing that we're talking about today, also resonating with Joanne Hawkins' point from earlier. People may be turning away from participation. They may be seeking legitimacy and expertise. Now, we tend to assume that the democratic failings of public participation are inadvertent. And sometimes that's true. People are trying really hard, but there's still a failure. But exclusion can be knowing. Or... Participatory me mechanisms can be deliberately undermined, as discussed by Sani Bokhajevic in this paper. The scepticism towards the whole participatory agenda is completely understandable, but I see no alternative to our continued democratic experiment. Climate change isn't an event. We can't pause democracy while we deal with climate change and then come back to our democratic values because climate change is always with us. 
I'd imagine that if you're still listening, you may instinctively agree with me that we need democracy, we need the institutions of participation. Rebecca Willis in this book is far from alone in arguing that the problem is not too much democracy, but too little. It's become almost a cliche to say that contrary to abandoning democracy, we should deepen it. I've been talking in quite general terms about democracy and about public participation. When lawyers talk about public participation, we tend to mean formal participatory consultative opportunities in regulatory processes. The drawing up of plans or policies, the granting of licenses or permits. With the proviso that this is completely inadequate, we should be thinking about a much richer tapestry. I'm going to stick with that for now. Public participation has never been about giving anyone a veto or about saying that one view is just as good as any other. Public participation is about attending to and staying open to different ways of understanding the world and different insights into our situation. Questions can't be left open forever, however. Things are and must be decided if we're to make progress. Issues are closed off on the basis of good enough knowledge and good enough legitimacy and hopefully provisionally. So, for example, participation around infrastructure in our planning system takes place within a policy on climate change. The Climate Assembly UK takes the 2015 net zero legislative target as its starting point. And the idea is that there's deliberation on how to get there. Deliberation, free exchange and development of values and views gets a lot of attention in the climate democracy literature, both for the big events like the Climate Assembly, but also for mundane day-to-day -day interactions with power. The question of how to render the closing down of decisions legitimate is extraordinarily difficult. It clearly includes science experts as well as democracy. The literature tends to emphasise local meanings, local responsibilities, local agency, and that's obviously crucial. But the more general, higher level closing down on climate change is the more pressing problem, I think. It raises questions that are probably unanswerable, but that must constantly be negotiated. It raises questions about the um, appropriate scale of decision-making and about who local communities are willing to be bound by. Within the local process itself, we need to engage with and be open about the failures and flaws of participation. They are very well known, they are not coincidental. The issues that are not open to debate, but have been closed down by prior decisions, must be attended to explicitly, explaining why and how and by whom prior decisions were taken implies the articulation of some sort of plan. And that might, for example, you know, that plan might mean no unpopular wind farms whilst we're still having airport extensions. The theme of the Peel Conference was to be the decade of action. And my failure to discuss the decade of action is, I'm afraid, another victim of the lockdown. 
it's quite hard to imagine what happens next. What I can say is that the next decade's action on our various environmental and other crises will both shape and be shaped by environmental law and associated democratic processes. As well as a hint of the sort of catastrophes that climate change could bring, the current health emergency, I hope, shows us how not to address the climate emergency. Mitigating climate change must not bring with it the hardships, the trauma, the civil liberties implications of lockdown. What we're seeing shows that even in an emergency, and even when expertise is vital and urgent, politics happens. Goods are distributed, bads are distributed, paths are set, particular visions of the world are preferred or just taken for granted. The crude question for us, I think, is who gets to actually do that politics? Thank you very much for listening. And now I think I hand back to Big. That was really insightful. It was great to hear Maria talking about the need to attend to the failures and flaws of participation, whilst also highlighting all the benefits that may arise from an engaged and informed society. It was also interesting to hear Maria's thoughts on the uncertainties of the environmental crisis and the current global health crisis, how these crises shape and are shaped by law and other democratic processes, and particularly how mitigating climate change must not bring with it the difficulties and civil liberty implications associated with lockdown. The Peel podcast will be returning to you with some more episodes in the near future that we hope will begin to tackle some of these and other environmental law issues. We would like to take this opportunity to thank Peel sponsors and supporters, the UCL Centre for Law and the Environment, City University, King's College London, Queen Mary University School of Law, Soas University, Zero Waste Mindset, Francis Taylor Building, UKLA and Planet Pod. You can find us on all social media platforms at PeelUK underscore. So please stay tuned for more and we look forward to seeing you all soon. Bye.